Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Did you know there are various forms of pemphigus? We usually talk about pemphigus foliaceus because that's by far the most common disease we see in animals, but there are different forms of pemphigus and I wanted to go over some of the differences in our episode of the podcast today. As a reminder, pemphigus in general affects something in between skin cells called desmosomes. So not to get too scientific or nerdy, but essentially those desmosomes are the connections between the skin cells. Remember, there's billions of skin cells on us, dogs, cats, but they have to be adhered to one another by something, and that's desmosomes. That desmosome is actually created by different proteins in the different types of pemphigus, and this is true for humans and animals, is really determined by which of those proteins it goes for, which is why we can see radical differences between some forms of pemphigus. But no matter what, pemphigus itself is autoantibodies that target keratinocyte desmosome proteins. And when we talk about diagnosing pemphigus and finding acantholytic keratinocytes, that is just skin cells that have lost that cell-to-cell adhesion. And we call that acantholysis. So nothing crazy that these skin cells are, but they lift prematurely because of those desmosomes being disrupted. So I'll tell owners, it's kind of like all your skin cells are linking arms like Red Rover. And then those links become detached. And then they those individual cells or the people in Red Rover would kind of float away. So you get separation and loss of that integrity of the epidermis. The first sign we'll often see are like pustules in these pets. But because those pustules are really fragile and transient, they're often missed. And then we see the crusting that kind of ensues from there. What's really interesting in some of the work that's been done looking into pemphigus itself and some of the differences we can see in different species. So for example, in people, pemphigus foliaceus, which is the most common form of pemphigus that we see in cats and dogs, um, is affected by the glycoprotein. The autoantibodies affect the desmoglein 1, which is what we see in people. For years, it was kind of assumed that dogs specifically, or we have more of the research, also were affected by desmoglein 1, which is different compared to other diseases like pemphigus vulgaris, which we'll talk about, which is deeper, tends to be more severe. What we found out through some of the work at North Carolina State over a decade ago but still fairly new is that dogs are actually different than people. They go after desmocolin one, very similar distribution within the skin, but really interesting to see that there are differences when we actually look at the different species variations. So pemphigus foliaceus by far the most common one we see, it does tend to be one of the more superficial ones. Um, and most common that we see in cats and dogs. Then there is a disease called pemphigus erythematosus. This is a bit of a controversial disease process. Some people think it's just localized pemphigus foliaceus, 
Um, some people think it's some sort of marriage between pemphigus foliaceus and DLE, discoid lupus erythematosus. Clinically, what we see in these cases is a lo- their symptoms tend to just affect the face. So they'll just have areas of like the dorsal muzzle affected compared to having other areas of the body affected, which we in pemphigus foliaceus, we obviously can see a lot of the trunk, things like that, that become affected. So it is really interesting to see the different thought processes over pemphigus erythematosus. Either way, doesn't seem to matter too much, except for maybe the treatment options. I don't know if we have a complete understanding of exactly the protein affected by this, um, just because of the fact that we think it really could be a very similar disease process. It does very similar to DLE seem to be exacerbated by exposure to sunlight, um, which is pretty interesting. When I was practicing in Southern California for my residency, you know, I saw, I, I felt like anecdotally, this is totally anecdotal that I saw more cases of pemphigus compared to what I see here in Portland, Oregon. We still see it for sure, but I don't feel like I see it nearly as often as I did in California. I have still had difficult cases of pemphigus in Oregon, but I had really difficult cases in California. So again, totally anecdotal, but I don't know if maybe there is, you know, we know that UV sunlight can exacerbate things like DLE. So maybe there is something to be said just about that stimulation from me living in an area that was pretty much year round sun to an area that has significant amounts of cloudiness throughout the fall and winter. So just an interesting thought process. Again, I don't have anything to prove that, but we do know that sunlight itself can exacerbate some autoimmune diseases. So, you know, we always got to be thinking outside the box or thinking about our clinical impressions. The next one I want to talk about is pemphigus vulgaris. Pemphigus vulgaris, interestingly, from my understanding, looking at the human literature is the most common form of pemphigus seen in people. It affects something called desmoglein 3. So we talked about in humans, pemphigus foliaceus is desmoglein 1. Pemphigus vulgaris is desmoglein 3. Why does that matter? Desmoglein 3 is more prominent in certain areas like the basal cell layer of the epidermis. It's also more prominent in mucous membranes. So we don't, we can of course see like nasal planum disease with pemphigus foliaceus, we don't tend to see oral lesions with pemphigus foliaceus, but the handful of cases I've seen of pemphigus vulgaris, which it is not very common. I think I've seen, including just helping others with their cases, like maybe two or three cases. And I've seen plenty of pemphigus foliaceous, but the ones I've seen with pemphigus vulgaris, they tend to be like really uncomfortable lesions in the mouth, sometimes hypersalivating, anorexic. They don't want to eat sometimes a strong odor from their mouth. And it does feel like a disease that can be a little bit more difficult to really get under control. And it does tend to be a bit more severe compared to what we see in lesions of pemphigus foliaceus, which is really interesting because it does tend to be the more severe disease. And that is the one that's actually seen in human medicine more compared to dogs and cats where we tend to see pemphigus foliaceus more. So quite interesting to see the differences kind of flip of that you know, epitheliotropic lymphoma, way off topic, but in that disease process in dogs, it tends to be CD8 driven. Um, in people it's actually four. So epitheliotropic lymphoma does has a different prognosis, actually a better prognosis in people more often than what we see in dogs who get epitheliotropic lymphoma. So 
we can always learn from other species, but we do have to recognize that there are some differences in how these pets respond to therapy, how people respond to therapy, the prognosis that exists between these different diseases, which is important. I've actually had a case once where the owner had pemphigus and I diagnosed the dog with pemphigus. Luckily, the owner actually had pemphigus foliaceus, um, so more superficial, but that was a very unique situation. Then there's a very, very rare form of pemphigus called bolus pemphigoid. Um, you actually don't tend to get acantholysis. There's a whole set of bolus diseases, which is not very common for us to see, but something we certainly want to be aware, aware of. Um, very rare. They don't necessarily get acantholysis. There's a separation that occurs at the basement membrane zone. Um, it'll affect something called BP, BPAG2, so bolus pimpicoid antigen 2. Um, so more of that separation. And when we get to some of those like bolus diseases, those can be really difficult, especially like the biopsy. Um, you often have to send them in for additional testing just to really identify certain things within the basement, basement membrane zone, because a lot of the lifting and separation can look very similar to one another. So that's an important thing to kind of pick up and recognize. You know, with all of these diseases, the big thing is to really just understand there are differences you know, I wouldn't get too caught up in knowing exactly all the little things about these diseases, but I would recognize, hey, mimphigus foliaceus, more common for us to see in dogs and cats. Interesting that vulgaris tends to be more common in humans. If I see a really bad disease that is affecting the nasal planum, you know, the body, um, and I, I'm also looking at the oral cavity and seeing lesions, maybe I do have something like pemphigus vulgaris, you know, on the radar. A lot of these cases are still treated very similarly. We're going to use immunosuppressive medications. So, of course, corticosteroids, you know, azathioprine, cyclosporin. I mean, lots of different treatment options, which we have talked about previously in other episodes of the podcast. Sometimes we are having to reach for more combinations or more potent doses of medications with the severe diseases. But again, I have still had a decent amount of pemphigus foliaceous cases that were quite difficult to control. Um, so I've, I've had my fair share, especially like I said, once in California, I remember Bulldog, I had on a plethora of things to control his pemphigus foliaceous. And it took a lot of time to get to a, a point where we felt like the dog was actually controlled. So just recognizing these differences, having different differentials on your, on your list, especially if there is oral cavity involvement versus not oral cavity involvement. Just go back to the basics of recognizing also when you think an autoimmune disease can be present. Is the nasal planum affected? You know, don't assume every skin case is allergic. If you are seeing like the nasal planum's affected, there's oral lesions. You know, the pet's not itchy, though I will tell you, pemphigus is very variable. Most of my cases aren't that itchy, but of course they do get secondary pyodermas, and so then that can make them itchy. But I have also occasionally had a case of pemphigus where they're not that infected, but they're severely pruritic. So we have certain guidelines of, you know, the more common things we see, like we say, oh, demodex doesn't tend to be itchy, but of course you can get a pyoderma. Pemphigus doesn't tend to be itchy like allergies unless they get a pyoderma, but then occasionally you do get cases that do, that are very itchy. Same with skin lymphoma. I've seen a lot of cases that aren't itchy at all. I've seen dogs completely tearing themselves apart. So that's just something that we really want to recognize as a variable that we can see in some of these diseases. So really interesting stuff. This is probably a bit more of a deep dive for those of you that really love derm, um, that really want to know more of the specifics. 
Um, so I hope that that's something you can enjoy. We've had a couple students spending time in our clinic who have a really strong interest in Durham. So it's been really fun just to see some of the excitement that can happen if people want to pursue a career in it. So I hope you can enjoy and take something away to help your clients and help you build your differential list in the future.